You are slipping into a distorted dimension. Reality and fantasy are changing places past the event horizon. Bullies are victims, men are women, and abuse is love. You weren't here just yesterday. Reality is still out there. But to find your way back, you have to notice it. And now, the Disaffected Podcast with Joshua Slocum. Welcome to Disaffected. I'm Joshua Slocum, and this is the show where we talk about politics, culture, and relationships through a psychological lens. I don't know about you guys, but I don't think there is a moment of the day, any day, that I do not have a song stuck in my head. Maybe this is the common state of humanity. Maybe most people, or most people today who grew up in the era of recorded and reproduced music, maybe most people have a song stuck in their head all the time. Maybe they don't. I don't know. Um, But today is a little bit vexing. (laughs) I love Richard and Karen Carpenter, but having Top of the World stuck in my head, both before and after my nap, is a little bit much. I, um... I was I was going to try to infect you all with the earworm too, but I can't do it with the carpenters because it doesn't matter even if I sing any of their songs an octave lower, it's it just doesn't work. Karen's voice is completely out of my range. There's no way for me to transpose this and hit any of the notes correctly. So, you're off the hook tonight, my friends. Mm, and tonight's delicious beverage is Celestial Seasonings Wild Berry Zinger. Mmm, mmm. I feel like such an old lesbian. And I've got the um, the trusty Center Draft Rochester kerosene lamp sitting next to me, as usual. It's become part of the ritual of recording these audio-only podcasts from my gracious dining room. And I'm a little bit sad because lamp season's almost over, and lamp season is winter. I like winter. I know most people like warm weather. I don't. If it's over 68 degrees and 30% humidity, I sweat like a pig, and the higher it goes, the crankier I get. And you know I don't have very much margin on that one. (laughs) So I always look forward to winter because I like coziness. I like the feeling of being... Well, you know what it is? I like the feeling of being in the little house in the big woods. My favorite, uh, no, no, it wasn't Little House in the Big Woods, although that was a good one in the Little House series. It was The Long Winter, which is actually one of the most dire uh, periods that Laura Ingalls Wilder documented in her childhood, that long, long, long winter where where everything was so difficult and Pa got lost in the snow trying to to get food. And I don't know why I have such a romantic attachment to it. Because it's actually a... Uh, Laura Ingalls Wilder cleaned up her childhood 
to some degree in order to make these books palatable for children. You know, some dire things are probably a little too much for children. But I think it's particularly evident in uh, The Long Winter because it's a, it's the story of, of the Ingalls family trying to survive this horrendous winter with, with snow piled up to the roof, um, not a lot of crops put by, people getting ready to steal food and grain from each other. It was hard, but it was much harder than she actually depicted in the book. The family actually came very close to actual malnutrition and starvation. It was absolutely dire. But there's something about that that image of a little house with a warm stove. And when they didn't have a warm stove, they made straw twists and huddled around it. There's something about that I still find very romantic. And and I like the I like the feeling that I get when the cold weather comes on. And I can get out all the antique kerosene lamps, clean them up, fill them up, and then heat and light the house. I mean, it's fairly easy. My house is basically a cottage. It's 980 square feet. It's a little Cape Cod that was built in the 1870s by mill workers in this part of Vermont. Uh, Woolen mill, textile mill workers. The town that I live in was settled originally by French Canadians who came down to work in the mills on the Winooski River. Um, And this house that I live in is a twin house to the one next door where the old uh, grandma Meme lives next door. Um, It's old. It has very few right angles. You have to duck your head to get up the stairway (laughs) to get to the two small bedrooms upstairs. And it's just absolutely perfect for coziness. All right, I'll stop with that. So what are we going to talk about today? On a recent episode, I talked about parents emotionally handicapping their children by not allowing them to experience any suffering and by removing pain and suffering immediately in the short term, thinking that that the best way to love and parent a child is not just to kiss their boo-boo uh, and wash it out and put a Band-Aid on it, but, but even the smallest boo-boos, physical or emotional, have to be made a big fuss over, and we have to remove any of these conditions. And I said that doing this to a child emotionally is analogous to doing it to a child physically. It's analogous to strapping them to a chair and not allowing them to get up and get their own dinner, get their own glass of water, and then being surprised when you unstrap them from the chair and they can't stand up because their leg muscles have atrophied. And I said, well, it's like that with emotions as well. Well, For some parents, I think it might actually be like that physically. Uh, A friend just posted on social media that she was out in a park today and saw something that she's seeing more of. And it was a little girl, five years old, maybe six years old, being wheeled around this park and to the car in the parking lot in a stroller by her mother. Now, I know, I know, there's at least one person out there who says, how do you know she can't walk? Maybe she's a paraplegic. She's not a paraplegic. (laughs) She can walk. (laughs) Mommy just doesn't want to let her walk. She better let her walk or she's not going to be able to. There's a good contrast to that from uh, a Twitter follower, mutual follower called Theo Jordan. I've mentioned him before. He's uh, he's really good. If you use Twitter and you're interested in the kinds of 
societal issues that I talk about. I'm not, I mean, he's not a carbon copy of me. He's, he's his own person and he's got his own uh, gloss on these things, but it's a, it's a good gloss. Theo Jordan, good follow. He said this today, the discipline process with children is such an emotional roller coaster. It's so hard to not give in to your desire to nurture and shelter. But there is a level of harshness that is inherent to the process or it isn't complete, like a kiln to pottery. It has to sink in to be effective. There must be finality, a moral and a repercussion. I tell my daughter all the time that I'm glad she experiences such intense emotion when she knows she did wrong. That's evidence of a strong moral compass. But it takes everything you have when you're their parent to not want to rush in and remove every ounce of discomfort. Yeah, I mean, um, it's clear that many parents feel this way. Excuse me. And obviously, a great deal of that is, is evolved emotional disposition that is necessary for parents because if parents aren't don't care about protecting their offspring their offspring aren't going to live and that family is going to get weeded out of the gene pool so on a big evolutionary sense you can see why it makes perfect sense but we are not just well we don't take actions just because of our biology and because of nothing else Our evolved instincts and emotional dispositions interact with our environment and something emerges out of that that is larger than either um, genetic predisposition or simply what we were taught. So when we live in an era when the idea about parenting is that we should shelter them, we should not let them suffer, that causing, that allowing them to experience pain is somehow harmful to them, that instinct to protect and nurture gets hijacked and it goes into overdrive. And that is what seems to be happening with many parents in the Western world, at least parents that I see in the U.S. and in, from my observation, Canada. Perhaps it's a little bit different in the U.K. and Australia. I'm not sure. Anyway, Theo, Oh, thanks always for uh, having something interesting to talk about. I was thinking today also about the difference, one of the differences in general between liberals and conservatives, and I'm speaking in the U.S. sense of that, uh, meaning people who are leftist liberals versus people who are conservative and on the right. Um at least in my experience, they tend to have a different attitude toward problem solving. Now, as with any generalization, I ask you to supply your own (laughs) not-alls. Supply your own nuance. Don't personalize this. If this doesn't reflect your attitude, then I'm not talking about you. So I realize this is a generalization and will not apply to everybody. Liberals tend to want to solve other people's problems for them, while conservatives tend to want to teach people what they need to learn in order to solve problems for themselves. When you you solve problems... And I I wish you could hear the air quotes around solve problems. When you solve problems for other people, 
um, by giving them free money, uh, free material benefits, uh, negotiating with creditors for them, whatever it is that you're doing. When you try to solve a problem for them with no strings attached, and strings can include things like reciprocal responsibility from the person you're helping, you don't actually solve their problems. It might make you feel like you have, but you, but you haven't actually solved their problem. Maybe you took care of an immediate situation for them, but you haven't done anything for them that is lasting or that is likely to impart knowledge that they can use in the future in other situations to help themselves out of the problem. And I don't know about you, but I get a lot more satisfaction these days out of doing what I can in the spheres that I know something about to help people solve problems for themselves and see them pick those tools up and then apply them across other domains. I've worked in consumer education in the nonprofit world for almost 20 years. And I have noticed that the learned helplessness is a, is a absolutely huge problem in the United States. We have been convinced, we tell each other, we tell ourselves that our problems come from without, that they are, in in a lot of cases, we act as though they are imposed upon us by outside forces over which we have no control. And there certainly are those things, right? Anybody can, anybody, sadly, can have a medical mishap and and fall into penury <laughs> because they can't pay for it. Um, your house can burn down. You can have a terrible landlord who breaks the lease and won't make your place habitable. Absolutely. People do things to us. That happens. But in my conversations with consumers over the years, I've noticed how many people, and I'm talking adults here. These are people anywhere from the age of 25 all the way up to 90 years old. The degree to which people want someone else to just fix a problem for them and and a, a sort of unwillingness to hear advice about, well, I can't fix it for you, but I can give you some suggestions about how you can make decisions in this situation that will financially improve the situation and that will probably leave you with less stress and worry afterwards. Over the 20 years that I've been doing this, I have watched people become less and less willing to hear that point of view. What they want is somebody to write a check to them, many people. You know, well, I can't afford this or my family's going through this. And I understand that, that you know, in the moment when you're in a financial emergency, yeah, I mean, it, obviously, you want cash money. But a lot of times these people are not in a situation where one of their interests is going to be severely harmed if someone doesn't come along and give them the amount of money that they want. Many of these people simply don't want to make different choices. They don't want to settle for second best. They don't want to buy the thing that's less expensive. They feel entitled uh, to having the best. And so they become a little bit hostile to someone who says, I can't write a check for you. We're not the kind of organization that does that. But what I can do is walk you through the situation and I will take the time. If if you have time, I will sit down with you and we can go through your situation. We can look, um, we can look at your bills. We can look at line items and I can make suggestions about where you can economize and how you can get the most 
out of the money that you do have to put toward this situation. I would say that of the people who call and want someone to fix their situation for them uh, by writing a check, probably only 20 to 25% of people are actually willing to take that time and take the advice. Most of the time, if they're not outright rude and entitled, and some people really are, they, you can, they express annoyance entitled annoyance in their voice when you tell them that you know you work for a charity but we're not a charity that gives out money we give out advice um only 20 or 25 percent of the people are willing to listen to it and it's a lower percentage than it was when i started out in my career um almost a couple of decades ago all right time to take a break at the halfway mark see you on the other side Kevin and Josh work themselves to the bone to bring you dark and disturbing content every week. There are starving listeners overseas who get no podcasts at all. Show appropriate gratitude today by making a donation at patreon.com forward slash disaffected or at subscribestar.com forward slash disaffected. Do it for mother. Welcome back. I thought about the difference between solving people's problems for them and showing them how to solve their problems in in terms of, of my own life and my own decisions and the way my approach to this has changed as I've gotten older and particularly as I've gotten into middle age. So thinking about it in terms of, of being in consumer education, uh, when I was new to this field, I really wanted to solve everybody's problems for them. I still didn't have the money. I mean, I couldn't write them a check, but I, I I wanted to really sit down and go through every single detail and tell them what they should do on this page and what they shouldn't do on this page. And I worked really hard to convince people that, uh, well, I'm not quite, I'm not sure that's quite the way to say it. Um, I when people contact me professionally now. And they want me to write a check to solve the problem in their life. What I used to do is I would try really hard. I would make a sales pitch that although I can't do that, I can help you do this. And believe me, you really want to talk to to me about this because I, I can show you how to save thousands of dollars in your situation or something like that. I don't do the hard sell anymore. What I say to people is, Yep, I, I understand. I'm sorry you're in that situation. Um, I can't give you funding, but what I can do is sit down with you and look at your um, look at your situation in the broader context and give you some options that will show you a way out of this. If you're interested, I'd be happy to take the time. And I leave it there. And I don't say anything and I wait for them to respond. It saves me time. Uh, it saves me time that I can spend... <clears throat> productively um, offering information to people who are willing uh, to take it and use it. Uh, But when I first started out, I very much wanted to handhold every person who came in for advice. I don't do that anymore. But I did that in my personal life as well, particularly with my mother. I was thinking about this. I've said it on the TV show uh, many times. It, you know, you guys can get a disaffected bingo card and, you know, you can mark every time I say my mother or uh, Cluster B, or Borderline, and you'll get bingo every single time. Well, I, it's always going to be that way because, yeah, my childhood and my mother loom very, very large in my head, even though I've done a lot of recovering from that abusive childhood. 
the fact is that it made me who I am. And it my having to go through it a second time, um, when I finally broke contact with my mother in my 40s, um, it put it right right back in the forefront of my mind too, but in a different and I hope a more productive way. But for most of my adult life, <clears throat> and my adult life started early. Um, as you know, I dropped out of high school at 16, became an emancipated minor, um, had been taken out of my home at 12 or 13 and, and put in, into an institutional setting. And when I left there, I never went back home. I went out on my own. But from that time forward, the caretaking of my mother um, became a constant feature of my life. Of course, when I was a little kid, <clears throat> my mother uh, got me to caretake her in all sorts of ways, emotional ways, uh, uh, labor around the house, but, but but particularly the emotional caretaking, the having to be the confidant and the counselor and the one who held her hand and held her while she was crying, even when I was a kid under 10 years old. So I had been trained from a young age that my, my job and my responsibility in life was to take care of my mother, solve her problems, and keep her stable. So my mother has never kept a job for more than a few years. Um, she spent most of her adult life not working, just mooching off the, uh, the welfare and disability system. And when you live a life like that, and when you spend irresponsibly, you end up in dire straits. So I was getting calls in my 20s and 30s. Oh my God, Josh, I'm going to be thrown out of the house. I can't pay the rent. Oh, the landlord is such a bastard. He doesn't understand. My my check didn't come on time, but this, that, and the other thing. And and, and then that bastard raised the rent and I told him I couldn't afford it. And I just don't know what I'm going to do. And then all, she'd break down and do the hitching and sobbing and, and terror. And oh my God, I'm going to be out on the street. I'm going to die of exposure. Da, 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 da. And this sent me into a frenzy. And so I, I would do things like call up my mother's creditors and negotiate on her behalf. Landlords, utility companies, other people that she owed money to. And I'm ashamed of a lot of things that I said and did. Because I probably I probably took a more aggressive approach with these creditors than I had any right to do. Because part of me was really convinced that the world was out to get my mother. Well, the world wasn't out to get my mother. Landlords charge rent because they have to pay a mortgage. They have to pay maintenance costs. They have to pay insurance. They have to pay property taxes. They have to escrow a certain amount every month against future maintenance. And they have to make a profit. I'm a landlord now, thanks to my mother. <laughs> Thank God she's not one of my tenants anymore. But boy, did that teach me some lessons about the difference between the image of the fat, bastard, rat capitalist landlords and the reality of what it's like for most people. There are big companies that own, you know, uh, huge properties, treat them like slums and treat their tenants very badly. We all know that's true. But so many of us are small landlords. We're just normal middle-class people. I own one second house that has two modest apartments in it. It was something I bought in foreclosure. It wasn't hardly worth anything. I sunk a lot of money into it to uh, to rehab it. 
and so I know what it's like, and I, I'm a very frugal person. I don't, I'm, I'm not a spendthrift. Um, but this is not an easy way to make an easy profit. You know, it just isn't. Um, so I spent my 20s and 30s doing that, constantly fearing that I was going to get another phone call because I never questioned the idea that it, that it was my responsibility to make sure that my mother was fed and clothed and housed and had whatever else she had. And if you don't come from, if you don't come from a family with abusive people in it, it may be a little hard to get this because naturally loving families want to help each other and in a normal and loving family, children would of course take their parents in if they hit financial hard times. I'm not saying that that's abnormal, but everything in in my immediate family was abnormal and every reaction, both my mother's and her children's was was in some way pathological. And I tried to solve her problems forever. When I moved her into this house, when I got into this, when I bought this new house in 2014 and I moved her in and I remember saying to her, you know, you'll never have to be homeless again. I had arranged the situation so that my mother could pay a modest below market rate for rent to me while I rented the additional apartment at market rates and that would have worked financially. It would have been it would have been very modest and sometimes there wouldn't have been any real return at all, but it would have done a little better than break even. So I moved her in. I did actually solve every serious problem she had. She would never have to worry about rent going up to the point that she couldn't afford it anymore. She'd be living in a home owned by family. She would be 40 minutes away from her son. Um, she could retire there and stay there as long as she wanted. That was my vision. I, you know, I mean, I even, I sat, I did a budget with this woman, for God's sake. I mean, sat down, took her bills, took her expenses, took her meager income. We went through it. It made her very uncomfortable. But I said, we have to do this. We have to know how much money is coming in and how much is going out. Because our fortunes now are tied together. And if I can't make this work, that means you don't have a place to live. I budgeted this all out. It wouldn't have been an extravagant life, but it would have been a very livable life. Didn't matter. I solved her problems and her behavior got worse and worse and worse. And the phone calls would come all day into the night. The texts would come in by the dozen. Something was wrong with this. Something was wrong with the other tenant. Somebody's tromping through the yard. Nothing, absolutely nothing did an iota to bring her paranoid anxiety back down to a manageable level. I was flummoxed. How is it possible? Because I had told myself that, of course, my mother is high strung to begin with. (laughs) Like me, where do you think I got it from? (laughs) Um, and could handle stress not as well as many other people. But I thought, that's exacerbated by this constant fear of being homeless. So once I take care of that, she's going to be able to basically retire, do her crafts. You know, I thought foolishly that she might get a part-time job uh, to have some walking around money. (laughs) Oh, no, she's too disabled to even sit on a stool at a cash register at a secondhand store, according to this woman. (laughs) 
She has no problem getting in her car and getting her ass around when she wants something, though. Didn't work. <clears throat> and and it ended. And it ended in, in a huge, terrible blow-up. Um, so I have done this. I have done the trying to solve problems for people thing, and it just doesn't work. Because even if you solve that immediate problem, if this is somebody you care about and somebody you love... You haven't, like I said, I I guess I'm repeating myself, but you haven't left them with anything lasting that they can pick up and use the next time so that they don't need as much help. And that ought to be what life is about, what we do for each other, teaching each other how to be more competent rather than trying to parent other adults. And I remember um, maybe five or six years ago, there's a lot of hostility to this idea that we are not as trapped as we think we are, we are not as oppressed as we think we are, and that we have more power over our circumstances than we tell ourselves and tell each other that we do. A lot of hostility from liberals. Five or six years ago, before, well, this had to be, yeah, so it was probably just before um, the big rupture in my life that changed everything. I was still hanging around with uh, my friends were were all leftists, liberals. A lot of them were radical feminists, definitely to the left of the political aisle. And I put a post on Facebook because I was musing about, would it be worth starting an organization, a nonprofit or some kind of educational co-op? <laughs> I know, listen to me. <laughs> mm-hmm. Stupid hippie freak. Um to put together an organization to teach poor and working class families how to budget for groceries, how to shop for best value and nutrition, and how to cook in a way that was both frugal, but also tasty and cost effective. Because there's all this talk about health, the health crisis, right? The obesity epidemic, which is real. And There was always an excuse for why this was happening that had nothing to do with any of the choices that the people affected by it were making. It's because of advertising. It's because it's because they live here and they don't have a grocery store. It's because this, that, or the other thing. So I I put I put this post up and I was very surprised that the initial reaction from a lot of my friends was not to discuss the idea with me. It was to tell me why. I was not being sufficiently sympathetic and I was expecting too much of people. So here's here are the responses that I got. Um, these are all the reasons why working class families can't learn to do these things and that it is presumptuous and arrogant of me to expect this of them. They don't have time to cook. Okay. Um. N- I would answer that. Then I'd get, well, a lot of these people, they don't even have kitchen equipment. Really? How many people do you know who even rent an apartment who don't have, oh, they don't have stoves. Many of them don't have a refrigerator, so they can't even keep fresh foods, and they live in food deserts. Really? How many people do you know who don't have a refrigerator in America? Oh, I know there are some. And yes, I do know that there are people who live in seedy motels and have nothing but one hot plate. 
This ain't most people. It's not even most poor people. It's not most working class people. Then we got to, well, they don't have pots and pans. Yes, I'm serious. Yes, they don't have pots and pans. So they don't have time. Uh, They live in a food desert. They don't have stoves. They don't have refrigerators. And they don't have pots and pans. Bullshit. This was all before anybody would even consider whether it was a good idea to do a program like this. Because I thought to myself, and here's actually, here's one of the, here's one of the areas that my mother did well by her children, or at least by me. Even though a lot of this was wrapped up in parentification and an inappropriate placing of emotional and physical burdens on me as a child, not all of it was abusive like that. I've talked about this before, right? Um, Being competent as a child to make simple meals and do things like that is a skill that is not abusive to teach to children and actually makes them feel proud and competent and increases their confidence enough that they can take the next step. So... Because we grew up poor, but American poor, we we never missed a meal. I never went hungry. None of us went hungry. We may not have eaten glamorously, but we always ate. I never went to bed with an empty stomach. And my mother taught me to cook. And we all had to go to the grocery store with her because there was, you know, one parent and the children can't stay at home all the time. Um, she taught me how to shop by unit pricing, volume, or excuse me, weight rather than volume. You know, what's the price per weight of this particular thing? I learned about extending, uh, meat with, with beans and other, and other dishes like this. So I knew how to do all this stuff. And because I worked in restaurants from the time I was about 16 through, uh, through my mid to late twenties, um, I picked. I, I learned that I liked cooking. I became a good cook, and my mother was a good home cook, and I became a good cook uh, from the foundation that she gave me. But then also, you know, learning how fancier food is prepared in in paid establishments. So, I don't think now. I if I were to, if I were to do some sort of educational effort like that, I'd have to rethink it because I my mind back in those days was still convinced, well, I didn't realize, of course, that carbohydrates are as big of a health problem as they are. I still believed that, you know, well, you can get by on beans and lentils and all this stuff. And and I'm sorry, but I'm here to tell you (laughs) that beans and lentils and all these things, you know, we talk about they're good sources of vegetable protein. Do you know what, what else they're good sources of? Carbohydrates. And just because they're complex carbohydrates doesn't mean that they're as good for you as people say they are. Um, I would have to really rejigger how to tell people how to shop and eat healthfully for an extended period of time because I have been convinced now by evidence that a meat and fat heavy diet with only green vegetables and a minimum of carbohydrates is far, far healthier for weight, um, diabetes, insulin resistance, um, arthritis, all sorts of other things. I'm too chunky right now. Uh, as anyone can see who watches me on the show, because I've been eating like a more like a normal American. I need to get back to the keto, no carb thing. Uh, this is a digression. <laughs> so anyway, um, the the responses that I got from friends, all of it was 
all of it was excuse making. All of it was why this wouldn't work. All of it was, you know, you're expecting too much. And one friend in particular got upset with me because I said something like, I'm tired of hearing parents complain about advertising from McDonald's and other fast food joints um, and how that advertising, there were, there was talk of, of having legislation about banning certain sorts of commercials uh, for fast food aimed at kids or forcing fast food companies to include certain, you know, pieces of fruit or milk or any, all of these very good ideas nutritionally, but the government has no fucking business telling McDonald's what to put on their menu at all. And frankly, no business regulating their advertising as long as they're not lying. So um, I said, I'm really sick of hearing this. Why don't parents turn the television off? And if the kids are still saying, I want McDonald's, I want McDonald's, why don't they just say no? My mother had no problem saying no to McDonald's. We went there a few times when I was a kid, but we couldn't afford it. There simply wasn't money. And... So I'd seen the example of a parent who had no problem saying no. I could not understand why modern parents were asking the government to protect them from anything that might entice their children so they wouldn't have to say no to their children. No, ban the advertising. I don't have to turn off the TV, but you should ban this kind of advertising. And one friend of mine said, was just astonished, and she said, you act as if advertising doesn't work. You act as if it has no effect on anybody. I'm thinking to myself... What are you on about? Sure, advertising works. That's why they do it. But you know why it works? Because we let it work. We actually have free will. We can step back and say, yes, this is very appetizing. I would very much like that, but it isn't good for me or it's not good for my budget and I'm not going to do it. <laughs> am I am I speaking Venusian or Martian? I, I mean, I just could not get this point across. Absolutely, I mean... Like, you act like advertising doesn't work. You act like people don't have brains and free will. And that's really what it comes down to, isn't it? The modern leftist conceit is that people don't have free will. They are victims of outside forces. They are victims of things that are imposed by more powerful forces than they are. And that's it. And don't you dare suggest that you can take control of your life because that means you hate poor people. Ding dong! That's today's show. See you in a couple of days. Well, hello, listener. It's Mommy again. You're quite welcome for the fine program. Why don't you show some gratitude? Send Mommy some money on Patreon. Patreon.com slash disaffected. Or subscribestar.com slash disaffected. You wouldn't want Mommy to starve, would you? And if you don't love your dear mother, you're not invited to find us on YouTube, Rumble, or Odyssey for our hottest weekly content. I guess this is goodbye forever.